We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Most valuable player, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis trailing the lob. Oh. Giannis Antetokounmpo. Two seconds. Middleton. Yes! Chris Middleton. Nice jumper. Got it. Giannis Antetokounmpo. Hey there. Welcome to the first ever Eurostep Podcast Network Book Club Podcast. I don't know how many book club podcasts we're going to have, but we had to do this one. We've got the whole squad here. Myself, Rohan Cotty, Jordan Tresky, Adam McGee. Fellas, do you want to say hello? Hello. <laughs> hello. It, it's only fitting that Jordan says hello first like that. So it's I'm going to go with the Jordan. <laughs> hello. <laughs> got to leave Jordan first. That's the thing. I, I can't time to step it well. He goes. No, it's your I never time it well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that we're off to a very coordinated start, we're joined by a terrific guest. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's not a secret. It's already, I mean, I guess if you read the podcast title, it's not a secret either. I don't but think we're it's here a with secret Mir- for anyone who's listening to this. Yeah, it's not. Whatever. <laughs> They're already Whatever, listening to All right. Well, we're here with Mirren Fader, the officially New York Times bestselling author. I feel like that's not going to get old for quite a while of Giannis, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP, or as I call it mostly, the Giannis book. Everyone knows it's the Giannis <laughs> book. The title's great, but it's the Giannis book. Mirren, how's it going? Uh, hi. What a lovely intro. That was amazing. And I'm good. I'm so happy. You said book club. You had me at book club. I'm in like three book clubs. So this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in a book club for your own book or other books? <laughs> no, other books. <laughs> You're in like, one now. Please. Yeah. Exactly. This is the one. This is the one. <laughs> There we go. I'm glad that that GSPN gets the one. So I'll I'll throw out the first question here. I mean, we have questions, topics. We really are just excited to dig in and talk to you about the book and and just Giannis himself uh, and and some things that have happened since. Obviously, some notable Giannis stuff has taken place in the last like three days. Giannis has been a busy guy. But starting off with kind of I'm just interested in the whole there's, there's a section of the book, I'm interested in the whole thing, but I'm really interested to start with kind of going through how Giannis finally got the, the necessary papers to come over for the draft, because it was an arduous process. And I think one of the great things about the book is all the people who you, it feels like haven't really been talked to or about as much, if at all, the people who didn't get papers, their perspectives, who knew Giannis or were in similar situations, obviously his 
he's the most extreme case in, in anything. No one can be compared really to Giannis ever. But I just want to hear a little bit from you about like the process of tracking down the sequence of events because I feel like that level of detail had not really been done before and figuring out the exact timeline, exactly who was involved, exactly what it took. So what was the reporting process like trying to make sure like, you know, you talk to enough people, you get the whole story and it's accurate. And it's been so long. I'm sure there's some tall tales people tell about being the one who got the papers or, or whatever else for Giannis. Yeah, exactly. So I think the first thing was like wading through myth versus reality. I think there's a really like sanitized version of the story that very much treads on the inspirational track. They give him papers. He gets the star in America. Um, the reality was so much more complicated. And so for me, vetting sources and going about reporting, um, first I had to actually talk to people in government and I knew that I would not get the the full answer. I knew I would get a press release version answer, which is to be expected when you're talking with political figures. So um, Anthony Samaras is the prime, was the prime minister and talking with him, you could see that he really, you know, dodged, you know, responsibility. It was so clear that the only reason why Giannis got papers was because he was going to start America and they dragged their feet and he made it sound like it wasn't, um, it wasn't like that. But with talking with, you know, the Spanish coach that um, signed Giannis and all his basketball coaches, all of the teammates, they really described it as a process that had what seemed like infinite red tape. And they begrudgingly gave it to him. You know, they didn't give it to his, um, his parents. They could have done that. They could have given it to Costas and Alex. They didn't. So it was very clear why he got his papers. And I think also another layer untold about that is that's another reason why Giannis was under evaluated, under scouted at first is because it's very hard to, to find someone when they can't leave the country because they don't have the papers. So, you know, it was a lot of just, interviewing people over and over and many of these people with a translator and, you know, one time is not enough. And, you know, there was a, um, what you might call it, a, a landlord that I talked to and the guy who nearly evicted the family and, okay, can I see documents that show proof that, that, you know, because you never know, <laughs> this is not something that you can just Google and be like landlord from Giannis's childhood. So I think it's just a lot of just tracking over and over and over again. Well, even like Thanasis's journey too, like you said, like his path to being a professional player was impacted by this, by not having papers himself. Like right. who knows how his own journey would have been played out if it they had cleared it, you know, way earlier than it was for them. Exactly. I feel like there, it's a family story. And I feel like this family's life goes completely wrong if one thing doesn't happen like their their lives are a series of improbable events essentially like mm -hmm. there's a million things like what if Giannis isn't drafted by Milwaukee what if Milwaukee isn't terrible and he doesn't get to play and they stash him in Europe or he goes to the Ben D League there's like a million what ifs that could have completely derailed this entire situation what if the family never got their t visas to come to America Giannis would have left and went home which I showed in my reporting so I, I just think there's so many moments like that which is why the guy's story is just so interesting is because it was never supposed to happen mm -hmm. yeah improbable is in is in the title for good reason <laughs> yeah. uh, i want i want to sort of build this arc as we go 
about this conversation, but when did you first start to really, like you mentioned the, uh, the lawyer and the landlord who was meant to evict. And then it's like, oh, they're sort of in the process of helping Giannis get these papers. You detail that story where, if you're starting at that point, where did you sort of get the initial ideas of how just wild and impossible this whole story is? Well, I think it was, you know, first talking with all the teammates and the coaches that saw him every day and the neighbors, though, that was like the first level of closeness. Um, and, you know, I, I think there was so much unknown about his childhood. The whole thing was a void, you know, and, and I just knew that like there like there were so many things that, you know, if you wanted to take the hunger alone, that would be hard enough. You want to take the evictions alone. That would be hard enough. You want to take unemployment. That would be hard enough. It seemed like there were a thousand things going on with him at any given point, And he just acted like none of them bothered him. And I think I was just really struck by the dissonance between how he acted and what was really happening, you know, um, fainting on the court because he hasn't had anything to eat and smiling and telling his brothers that he's fine. He's eaten when he hasn't. Um, I, I just found that to be really compelling. And I think, um, because it's been so, you know, described as this inspirational, miraculous thing, it kind of glosses over those moments. And I, the more of them I found, the more I realized that, okay, there's adversity. And then there's, there's just, how does a person wake up every day and deal with this? One of the the things about, I guess, particularly the early part of his story, and generally with biographies that interest me, is there's this kind of really subtle difference in terms of how a writer tries to capture the person's perspective and get the story across. And with that, something I was curious about was, for you, from when you're setting out, from when you're doing a lot of your research or interviews, from really, I guess, first and foremost, the Greek part of his story before he gets to the NBA, were you thinking of it as trying to kind of capture Yanis's perspective or even, I guess, find his voice through a lot of the subjects you were talking to? Or was it more a case of these are the people who had front row seats at different parts of his journey? And this is one of the more interesting ways to build his story and to get it across. I mean, I think it's a combination of things, you know, because I did interview Giannis for the story that this book has come out of and just interviewed the family members multiple times. And there's nobody closer than the family. I was able to kind of hopefully show it through, you know, Giannis's perspective um, from the people that know him best. But also it is a front row seat from all the people who saw it. And I that was really important because so many people since Giannis's ascension have tried to claim like, oh, I knew he was going to be good. Oh, I knew he was this. I, I saw it. And the truth is nobody really knew and nobody saw it. And um, it's very refreshing to hear people that were actually there say, no, actually, he sucked at first. Like, <laughs> no, actually, he traveled all around the court. No, actually, he hated it. You know, it's or or the, you know, his his coach that discovered him, Spiros Velianatis, who has been hailed as the, like, the man who discovered Giannis. But actually, there's a rift between him and the family. That guy is an embellisher. Here's the truth about the situation. We can look at it accurately and objectively. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's a mix of both. The goal with any long form story, and now I guess book, is like you want the reader to finish the story and have a sense of what a person is like. Um, and that means 
do I have a sense of what they'd be like to hang out with? Do I get a sense of how they think, what motivates them, how they operate in the world, how the world treats them? Are they funny? Are they smart? Are they kind? Like you want to almost like create, just show this, this whole human being and all of its complexities. And so that is the hope that I hope people see that by the end. Does it, do you think it makes it easier or harder to undertake something like this with someone like Giannis who hasn't really engaged in much like self myth making? Like there's some players out there. I think LeBron is the best example for a lot of reasons. Like there's a lot about LeBron out there. LeBron is very good at controlling LeBron narratives, not strictly a negative. I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, Michael thing. Jordan like just had the last dance. dance. Uh, yeah. Michael yeah. Jordan, certainly yeah. <laughs> same, same right. level. Yeah. Um, but is it, uh, but there's obviously that that's more content out there on those guys. Giannis, Giannis is camp pretty tight lipped. I mean, most like the I think has broken more Giannis stories than most anyone on his TikTok or whatever. <laughs> then that, in your opinion, was it easier, harder, or just different than working with like someone, uh, a different athlete who's maybe more open and, and shares more willingly about themselves and their lives? I mean, it's both. Number one, it's a good thing because that gave me an opportunity to find out what happened. You know, it was like this wide open ground, fertile to like find stuff. And, you know, it's, that's exciting to, to try to be the first to try to uncover an area of somebody's life that hasn't been covered, you know, like in, in our landscape with how quickly the news moves and how to find your place in sports media and all of these things, you have to be different than everyone else. And if everyone is just talking about, will he stay or will he go? I thought, well, I can really differentiate myself by talking about the whole childhood and teen years. Nobody knows anything about that. That's what's different. So on, on the one hand, it's exciting. On the other hand, it's really hard because again, you cannot Google Giannis's childhood friends, Giannis's favorite place to go as a kid, Giannis's evictions, Giannis landlords. Like these are like, it, you know, and what fun would that be? That's not journalism. Journalism is like, I'm going to go find it. I'm going to go talk. I'm going to talk to eight people who will lead me to this one landlord. Then I'm going to check if he's really a landlord. And then I'm going to see if he's, you know, who's he connecting me to? And then is that guy real? Like, I love that. So, but on the one hand, like it's really challenging because you know, you're kind of like doing something that isn't out there, but that's, that's the goal of any reporter. And, you know, I, I really, I can't believe that a superstar at this magnitude in his like whatever year in the league, this is the first time we're learning about some stuff in his, their childhood is like crazy to me, but that's, that's how he moves. He's just very quiet. Do you think I, there's actually, I have a question about that. That's like specifically linked to that because it's like um, when he's talking, or it was early in that the Greece portion where it's always about like, you know, trying not to be, you know, whether it's golden dawn or, evictions landlords they not putting their parents at risk because they're undocumented and you can kind of see from like having such a tight circle and how that has played into how he is now where he just it's i think at one point in time i just thought like oh he's just not interested in being you know a lebron type or these you know the the marketing side of the of being a basketball player lebron haters don't come at us by the way we're not <laughs> we're not doing anything bad no. just prefacing but, jordan continue <laughs> but it's it's i think it comes from that sense of like he still feels like you know like it says in the chapters of like all this could go away if i 
open my circle too much kind of thing where he just kind of wants to be grounded by his family and not much else in his life. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever change, but that's why a lot of the book is a family book. It's a family yeah. story. You'll go four pages without hearing the word Giannis. It'll just be Thanasis and his own journey or Kosas and his own journey, Alex, his own journey. You know, what he does care about is them. And so I wanted to center their individual stories as much as possible. You know, one might, somebody, um, I'm, I'm, now I'm learning not to read comments, but somebody was like, there's too much Alex in here. And Alex is the youngest brother. And I'm like, all right, well, Alex is the most important thing to Giannis in addition to his other brothers. So yeah, I'm going to tell you how Alex started playing basketball and how he hit the side of the backboard and he, Giannis loved his chubby cheeks. You know, it's a, it's Giannis' story, but it's a family story. <laughs> yeah. Never read the comments from oh four, four long time <laughs> like bloggers where there's like <laughs> comment sections. Never read the comments. One, like, one of the always sorry, one comments. of the things that um, that really struck me that I've always been, I guess, intrigued by just how some of some elements of the story I didn't feel as someone. I'm from Ireland, so I'm a European. I haven't been to Greece. I've been to a lot of countries around kind of Mediterranean Europe that would have a similar kind of, I guess, atmosphere, environment, even, I guess, makeup in terms of the population. So something that always struck me is the way the street selling in Giannis' story was told really from the moment he came into the NBA. I never really felt like just how grim the reality of that was, was, was accurately captured in a lot of profiles, even some of the kind of TV spots that have been done, because if you go to countries like Greece or if it's Spain or Portugal, there has long been that this is one of the few ways that really low income or undocumented African migrants can make their money. And it always, you know, it, it, you'd see it kind of termed as like, oh, he was a salesman. I, I That was something that I really I kind of appreciated in the book because for the first time it was a case of, oh, no, this is actually kind of really tapping into the reality of that. I'm just curious, as in for your research and is it your interviews? How did you kind of really get to the root of a lot of that stuff that I think for people who have, we'll say, a better than passing familiarity with Giannis' story, they're kind of key beats that they know. But I think it's one thing to know it in passing. It's another thing to kind of see it or to have a really clear sense of what it is. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. I um, I talked of course, with the family about this and tried to get detail, you know, selling things in the street doesn't really tell you much. And that's all we really knew. But where did you go? Okay, how did you get to that place? What did you sell? How long would you be out there? What did it feel like? And and talking with friends who saw them sell. And it's, it's details like that. But it's also, I think, a larger thing than just trying to be really relentless in pursuit of details. I think it's an understanding of how to frame things. I think his story's just been so um, Disney-fied, I guess, that um, it's it's not it's not a fairy tale. It's really, really awful in a lot of ways. And if he was not as tall as he was, and if he did not somehow get this miracle papers, he might still be on the street selling papers like a lot of other migrants you see today. And I think it was just really important to tell that accurately, but without doing it in an exploitative way that, you know, kind of glorifies trauma. Like, you know, I think 
there's a sensitivity that you have to have as a reporter to know how to talk about difficult upbringings without sensationalizing it. Um, and part of that is giving the full picture. He was not miserable selling items. He had quite a lot of fun with his brothers doing this because you're eight years old. This is all, you know, you don't have like this narrative framing that life is miserable. So for every traumatic thing you see in the book, you see a scene of joy, of laughter, of love, so much love and, and warmth. And that was so intentional that for everything we talk about selling, we talk about joy and laughing because trauma porn doesn't, not only is it just not accurate, it, it doesn't get to the heart of the story of Giannis, which is that no matter what is going on on the outside, there's still this brightness and, and sadness in the inside. Yeah, it's definitely realer for not just the kind of the harshness of the situation, but also the laughter makes it real too, because as you read through the book, you just get a clear understanding of all of the family dynamics. I think that definitely does really kind of, it ties it together in a way that I haven't seen a lot of that story. I know it's something that amongst ourselves we we had talked about before, like a lot of the, the race elements, the Golden Dawn, I think that was really eye-opening for, for a lot of American readers and maybe an audience that wasn't as familiar with Greece where Golden Dawn is something that in Europe, they come up in the news and there's an awareness. So I would, without knowing the specifics, I always would have had the kind of assumption of it. But uh, that's something that, all credit to you, I really admire about the book is that you kind of clearly go through that element of the story and you see the ups and downs and you see how, well, he could be laughing on the streets one moment and the next moment he could be running to try and get home. There's there's all of those kind of details that kind of really round it out in a way that I don't think that part of his story has necessarily been before, particularly in American media or English language media. It may be a different story in Greece itself, but it's not something I'd encountered in the English language before. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. I, I hadn't heard of Golden Dawn prior. Um, I was completely unaware about this organization, this criminal organization. Um, it was so important to have that in there because I think race is rarely talked about with Giannis, um, maybe more so in, in recent years, but really it, racism is not something to triumph over. It's not something to overcome. It's, it's not, uh, <laughs> it's just not. And I, you know, to whitewash his story is to do a disservice to what he went through and what he still goes through. And, you know, um, Rowan and I DM'd, you know, a while ago about, you know, the mispronouncing of his name and that is current day racism in America and abroad. Um, I can't tell you how many podcasts I've been on in the last couple of weeks where they say, how do you say his name again? And, um, you know, it, anyway, it's, it's just people, when you, when you're writing a biography, you're writing a long form story, you're writing about people and you can't talk about people without talking about identity. And you can't talk about identity without giving context of the socio-political economic factors that, you know, somebody goes through. Giannis does not exist in a bubble. The way that people treat him and look at him and the way that he goes out into the world inform his entire experience. So the challenge for me was we can't get to America on page 300. Okay. Like we have to <laughs> choose which details we're going to use, you know, but there, it's fascinating, the upbringing. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of that stuff you mentioned, it's just, and Adam, you mentioned this as well. It's just, it hasn't been documented. It hasn't really been talked about because a lot of it, it it's highlighted in the book. Again, I'm not going to spoil everything. Go read the book, go buy the book. 
So yeah, I'm not it's the book I'm... through Rowan's giveaway. <laughs> I saw that today. That's so awesome. Thank yeah, you. I have multiple copies. So I was like, yeah, I bought and I bought one. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. But, <laughs> a lot of that stuff was not covered, and this was mentioned a little bit in the book. A lot of it is being like taken away, and it's not really being accessible like a lot of stories like there's a there's a mention of a story that just doesn't exist anymore through uh certain outlets it's just right it's just undercovered underreported so i thought it was great that you highlighted it and it's just it's even more important in this day and age when everyone is sort of becoming more and more politically aware and like aware of injustices and aware of the world around them in cases in which they were not as aware their eyes weren't open enough so it's even more important in this day and age. How does that sort of frame the story? Because it's a lot of that is, like you mentioned, it's well in a very, very large, important part of his story. And once you come across all this stuff, you mentioned you you hadn't heard of Golden Dawn. So you're learning about this. Does that change your mindset? Does that change how you frame the story? Or do you just go about it as a story of Giannis and what he's had to go through or the outside factors affecting Giannis, if that makes sense. Yeah, I definitely think what you just said, the latter part is, is very real. I think what I kept thinking of is that, you know, when you find out a bunch of information for a story, you have to ask yourself, like, what is this really about? Okay. Yes, it is about navigating life through Golden Dawn and trying to escape and get papers and come to America and make it as a basketball player. But it's really about themes of belonging and home. And I think all of the things that we just talked about further bolstered that theme of like fitting in and or not fitting in or belonging or not belonging. And I feel like throughout his entire life, he's been searching for home, literal physical home, right? Like a stable home where you're not evicted, but also home in terms of acceptance and identity and belonging, whether that's as a black person that is Greek and not being seen as such and trying to be accepted into that society or belonging in America, trying to then be accepted into that society and that the society that is the NBA and finding your way there. So I think it just really gave a good foreground to like this guy's journey and his search, you know, a book, uh, what I learned is that a book moves forward by some quest. We, we're rooting for this guy as he goes on this quest. We sort of know what happens on the quest, right? We are aware that the quest ends up going really well. He ends up being a star, but we're like rooting for him as he's going through all these hoops and you're, you're, you're wanting him to feel accepted and belonging because the more you read about him, the more you realize how determined he is, how sweet he is, how lovable he is, how smart he is, how kind and hardworking he is. And so I, I just think it, it further um, sets up the quest, the quest of, of belonging. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, 
Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I think one of my favorite things that if I, if I did know at one point I'd forgotten, but I don't think I ever knew just like we talked about all the improbable twists and turns. And I know all of the four of us here before the book had probably more of a John Hammond appreciation than a lot of people out there as, you know, maybe not the world's greatest GM made one of the greatest draft picks. Trader John. Trader John 1.0. With yeah, Gambler John, <laughs> Trader John with the H. Now we have Trader John without the H. But, um, but I think the fact that specifically, probably maybe not probably, but in in some part because of the Darko Millicent situation in, in Detroit, which Hammond was there for, seeing he him not have family support, and I don't know Darko. I did a little bit of research. Also had. Uh, a tumultuous upbringing, shall we say? I think in Serbia it wasn't wasn't easy for him either. Um, but Hammond really going into the Giannis pick from the jump, thinking he needs support. You know, until the family gets here, the Bucks organization. Ross Geiger is a coordinator who gets like assigned to be the Giannis guy. Other people are on the staff, and and Hammond himself, you know, all kind of trying to act as this almost fill in family and some great stuff from the vets on the team who were maybe more of the tough love part of the family. But, you know, what was the process like of, and you kind of, you, you, my heart gesture when, when I brought up Ross, but what was the process like of talking to Hammond and all these staffers and kind of uncovering the way the Bucks approached this, which is kind of unique in terms of, of draft picks, especially, you know, it wasn't first overall pick or top five, like Darko. I mean, this was 15 overall kind of a looked at as a flyer pick by a lot of people. God, I loved it. I loved this section of the reporting. Um, first of all, I didn't need to vet John Hammond. No, he's the GM, you know, like it was just a level <laughs> of easier, you know. Um, but I I just, they were so generous with their time. Ross and I spent hours talking. And I just think that these people did not have to do any of this for Giannis. And they would do it all again if he flamed out. Like they really loved him. And, and love him. And I 
have never, I've covered the NBA for a while. I have never seen this type of relationship with an organization and the players. Sometimes, you know, you talk with PR before the interview, you joke and they say, yeah, I don't know anything about the guy. Good luck. Um, and you know, this is not the case. They knew everything about him. They, they were there for him around the clock. I mean, it really felt like a family and it was wonderful to report on because first of all, the bucks were awful. And like, that was such a rough time (laughs) and everybody could have been crabby, you know, like you guys, you know, like, especially if you played like it, when you lose, it is just the worst. Like you want to leave immediately. And I'm not saying (laughs) like there weren't issues, but for them to like, be positive around Giannis and everyone not shut off and silo themselves off, but encouraging to this guy. And, and the best, the best part is they're doing it because they just like him as a person. They, they did not have clairvoyant powers to know that he would become Giannis. That is my favorite part of the Hammond interview. He's like, Marin, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not trying to sound like I knew it, you know, and I just, I love that because everybody's come out of the woodworks, you know, in a draft room, all these other teams say there's 20 names on the, on the board, one random guy in the back. What about Giannis? And then, and then years later, we wanted Giannis. It's not the same thing. You know, Mm. there's one guy in the back room. Giannis wasn't even on your board, but Hammond was just so honest. Like, look, here's what I liked. It wasn't a fairy tale. I had no freaking clue and I took a chance. And again, it's like de-romanticizing the Giannis story. It doesn't need romanticization. First of all, there's so much improbability. It doesn't need to be pumped up, you know? And I think it's been so pumped up and, and mythologized that I just appreciated the candor of these people. Like one guy I talked to talking about um, what it was like drafting Giannis without having his medical information. He was like, we're fucking scared. Like we have no idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> like how do you draft yeah. a guy without? No, that would never happen in 2021. Never, oh, yeah. never. Well, it's even interesting too. Cause like you mentioned how, you know, it was a village for them to to raise Giannis when he came to Milwaukee, but it mirrors exactly like the uh, cafe owner in Greece, like all right. the players that he's playing with, like they didn't have to do any of the things that they did. And like you you mentioned, I think more than on one occasion, like all those players, like, yeah, they're getting paid, but it's not like, you know, second division in Greece. Like it's still like very, you know, but, you know, they're not like lavish players like in the NBA now. It's just like they still – they saw something in Giannis way back then and, you know, even coming to Milwaukee that they just felt like, you know, giving him food or giving him shoes or whatever it was like all that stuff that just like, it just, it, that's where like the romantic part of it all obviously comes from, but it's like, they still didn't have to do any of that to make it, you know, to, to generate the story out or the path that he, he came on and all that stuff. It's just really interesting to see. Yeah, like they liked him as a friend. Like Giannis's childhood yeah. friends, were like, yeah, this guy was so funny. Like he was so adorable. He would just say these things, and you'd say, Giannis, stop it. He'd be like, no, you know, it's just so, it's just so cute. You know, it's like they're not like, yeah, like the way that he dribbled the ball. I mean, sometimes I would forget to ask about basketball. I know it's very LOL, like coming on a basketball podcast saying that, but it would just be so deep in like the personality and the human side. I'm like, oh wait, what was this game like back then? You know, so people were helping him not because of how good he was, but cause he was just like a really funny guy. You'd want to be friends with, you know, that's just, it's really so simple. They just, he was pleasant to be around and he had every reason to be angry, bitter, uh, upset. 
And God knows he was when he got to Milwaukee because his family wasn't there. And yet he acted like the happiest person ever. So mm-hmm. I think people, people were willing to help Giannis because they just recognized a resilience in him and a, and a lightness in him. And people are attracted to that. My favorite part of the book, I think, is it's one of these people who it's you're just saying just how much he cares for Giannis at a time where there's so much else going on. It's Larry Drew. Because over the years, uh, Larry's Larry Drew's reputation with books fans has never been very high for obvious reasons. It's the worst <laughs> season of franchise history. And the way really things took an immediate upturn, although they did go back down for a while after that, um, it, it kind of, I think it left a certain impression of Larry Drew as a coach. As the guys will know, as a lot of people listening, I came to the NBA through the Atlanta Hawks. You're going to notice this because I'm going to have a lot of questions Hawks related. So when Giannis was drafted by the books, my attention was primarily on the Hawks. I had watched all of Larry Drew's Hawks teams and I had very strong feelings about how the books treated him. Really, I, I started covering the books when they were a Jason Kidd coach team. So I've always felt there's kind of a part of the Larry Drew story that's been missing for books fans. And oh. I think this fills in the gap really nicely. It was something that struck me in the post-game six. Giannis has won a championship, his press conference, and he starts thanking people. And one of the people, he straight away he shouts out, it's Larry Drew. And at the time, I hadn't read the book yet. And I was thinking, Larry Drew, that's cool that he's remembered you know, one season with Larry Drew. But in the book, you talk about you know very early days. Giannis is at the under-20s tournament for Greece in Estonia, and Larry Drew goes... And he goes to show that he cares about him as a person, not just as a basketball player. Um, you mentioned he talked about seeing his own son, Larry Drew II, who was trying to make his own way in professional basketball at the time, and basically wanting to be the kind of figure that he wished was around his own son on his journey. And I, I just think he's always come across to me as one, a really good coach, a good development coach too, which I, I think comes across here. Like he, he put Giannis in his development first, he tells Herb Cole, you know, he's the best player on the team in his rookie season. All of that is great. How did you find talking to him about it? Because as books fans, for obvious reasons, Larry Drew, we haven't heard a whole lot of talking books since his departure from the team. And I just thought he gives a really interesting perspective. And he also he shows that he's a, one of those people, along with John Hammond, along with Ross Geiger, all of those kind of crucial people in Giannis's rookie season, getting him acclimated, the patience he had more than anything with Giannis on all levels, on and off the court, I thought was really something. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why we haven't heard from him is because the, his exit was so ugly. Um, and, you know, I think one of the details in the book that I found really just tells you more about like Buck's culture at the time than, than Larry, but that he didn't contact Giannis after that. And that was, I, I felt like that came from a place of pain and, and sadness rather than something bad or mean. And I thought I was really honest of Larry to say, and I really appreciated that because it's so clear that he has such a love and admiration for Giannis and the two of them had a really great bond, but you know, the way that Jason Kidd came in and the way that Larry went out has just been glossed over by history. And I don't know if it's because small markets just aren't covered by national media the way that they should be, but it was really bad. And I think that's why you haven't heard much from Larry. But when he talks about Giannis, there's just such an excitement in his voice. Um, 
he loves Giannis. And, and, and I think it's just so pure because he loved 18 year old version of Giannis because it just wasn't Giannis, you know, Mm -hmm. he would make a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes during practice, but that's not what Larry remembers. Larry remembers this guy that wants to be so good, so badly. And a guy that you had to say the plays over and over again to, because you know, he wasn't understanding it. And I don't know. I really enjoyed my conversation with Larry. Like he, I, I think another part that's really important that I tried to put in the book is that another layer and level that they bonded was because they're both black. And I, I think that there's, you know, not always black head coaches, obviously in, in professional sports leagues, there's a disparity there. And it was really important to have that for Giannis, somebody that could relate to him in numerous ways and not just the father son dynamic, but also just, I don't know, it just added a layer of, of closeness, I think. Um, and I think probably Larry would say the same that, you know, he felt bonded or connected to Giannis for, for numerous reasons. Um, but yeah, you know, it's funny. We talked about this. Um, I did not expect to go so deep in uh, Buck's coaching history, but it just so happened in, in numerous parts of the book that that, that had to occur because, you know, it, he can't coach the team. He was coached by others and, and they had, they played a, a small role in his life, but important roles. We, we definitely could have tipped you off in advance that that would have been uh, a detour, whether you connected it or not, that you're going to end up going down. It's it's fitting that after they win the title, we talk our most about Larry Drew. Right. It's right. just, it's so fitting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, it's funny because he's, he's an assistant coach with the Clippers, right? I think mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. with the Clippers now. Yeah. Because when I was doing the book, he was out of the NBA. So I think there was a also a bit of Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because he wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So I think he was with he, the Cavs at one point too, right? Like yeah. coach, after right? Lou got fired, he right? took over yeah. and he hated being the coach of that team so much. He just stopped doing NBA basketball <laughs> for a while. That's Cavs and Bucks. There's some intertwining uh, there, I think, of just bad feelings. In this from the time the time. thing with that, though, is just in terms of the experiences he's had, like I'm sure everyone remembers, he there. did the Jabari press conference. Oh, yes. was, yeah. 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 Public yes. market, wasn't it right? Which is yep. right. like, I can't think of another situation with a head coach where they're doing like star draft pick new season has started essentially when you're doing that and then a few days later it's like he's gone so i i understand i think you're right to say it's it's big of him to acknowledge now that he, he wasn't kind of texting Giannis and but it's very easy to understand just how much that must have hurt particularly when they got jabari and everyone thought jabari was going to be the next big thing at that time too it's like that's the time where you want to have that job. He thought he had it, and then just out of nowhere, rug pull from him. Right, right. Then it's the uh, roll down the windows, let's do this era. <laughs> <laughs> that's a deep cut, Ron. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure, I'm sure more than just us know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that commercial is just etched in my brain for some reason. Um, where do we go from here? Uh, we let, let's keep talking about the Hawks connection, Adam. Uh, let, let's go on that. So a lot there was a lot of talk about this, and I know this has been uh, talked about before, but particularly on like the Woj pod, the Woj special that he did uh, on the Giannis draft. That was that was what it was called, right? The Giannis draft. Yeah. It was about like the Hawks' interest in Giannis and like how they were so laser focused. They really, really wanted Giannis. There was like the stories of like the secret flights, the rerouting of flights. So they, no one knows that he's in Atlanta. Did that like 
Was that like a shock to you? Like, oh my goodness, the Atlanta Hawks really wanted this kid that like no one else knew about? It's like there's an NBA team who's like doing everything they can to get this kid. Well, everyone else is like, yeah, sure, I'll send it. I'll send the scout over, see what happens. Well, at first I was like, you know, I don't know how Jenny. Okay, so to backtrack, I was doing all the Hawks reporting way before this podcast came out. So I was uncovering this way before that. And then when it came out, I was like, fuck, you know, like, like, oh, oh. Um, and, and then I was like, what's in there? Oh, what's no. The, it's like the famous um, Donald Trump Jr. thing, I think, was it? Where it's like, he just, he just tweeted, tweeted it out. It out. <laughs> he just podcasted it out. God. I was just like, no. So I was like, hopefully we have different anecdotes. I, I really, I refused to listen for a couple of weeks because I was so uh, just, you know, I thought I had this scoop that nobody knew. And and then this came out and I was like, damn it, the book doesn't come out for another year. Um, but no, I, I, at first when I, so to backtrack, that's, I said that because I was like, I wasn't sure if what I was hearing was real because it wasn't really out there as much. Um, but, you know, I talked to so many people, both off the record and on the record. It was very clear that this was genuine and, um, I was really thankful I got that secret meeting in there in Italy, which the podcast um, didn't cover um, because I thought that was really interesting. It's almost like at every point Giannis had to be like smuggled into these rooms so people would find him when it's like, was he that attractive a, a prospect that you had to smuggle him in this basement and you were that concerned people would see. But then I guess that's, you know, that's how it works. So um, I was surprised at the level of secrecy. There were Hawks people I talked to that were like, yeah, I didn't even know. And um, you know, I've never seen that either where there's a conscious effort within to not tell anyone, you know? Um, yeah, I found the Hawk stuff super interesting and it was really important for me to sink my teeth into that because I think when I was writing this, there was a fear that I wouldn't have enough basketball in there. That, that's always just like my neuroses. I don't think it's based on stuff, but I always fear that because people know that I really love the human stuff. I fear that people don't think I have enough like sportsy stuff in there, even though like I did play college basketball. Like I love basketball. I try to have both in there, but I, I was like thinking of every possible criticism of the book, like not enough basketball. And so I like made sure to like <laughs> have the stuff for like the hoop people. <laughs> and then also like grandmas that know nothing about basketball. I wanted it to be a nice, <laughs> nice little Venn diagram blend. Um, so yeah, that's what inspired that chapter. <laughs> Did you differentiate um, between the basketball players and the hoopers, though? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a podcast, and somebody's like, so you used to play? And then they they asked me if I was a basketball player or a hooper, and I was like, well, I know I'm not on the internet, but I do know that one. <laughs> what, did you, what did you say? Yeah, what was the answer? I, I I know I'm a hooper, but not anymore. Oh, like pre pre pandemic. Now once I'm a hooper, probably, always a hooper. Yeah, once yeah, a hooper, yeah, always yeah. a hooper. Come on. Now I'm now I'm probably terrible. You guys, the the book, <laughs> book club is gonna have to do like a, a pickup game, and we're gonna have to warm up for like an hour for me to get back out. There. I'm ready. Rohan's done some self reporting that the jumper looks good, so we, we got that to go off. Wait. I have to say, one of my favorite things in the book was talking to the priests that used to play yes. at the Bucks yes. facility. That was yeah. and Hammond, like specifically, like giving what was I'm forgetting the detail. He said something like, "Oh yeah, you guys can like." I mean, granted, how the season was like unfolding, he's like, "Yeah, you guys could play your game if you want." Exactly, like, you're gonna replace them. No, it was so funny, and it just reminded me, Rohan, because one of the guys who was like 84, he's still out there every day during the pandemic. 
Like wow. he still, he still plays in Milwaukee. I forgot it. It might be, Jer- I think it's Jerry, Jerry Bertain. I'm That's not hundred percent sure, but Jerry is a Hooper certified. <laughs> um, and I was like thinking That's to myself awesome. as I'm interviewing him, I was like, I would love to play basketball with you. And then I thought that was like so creepy to say, so I didn't say it. But. <laughs> <laughs> and Giannis wanted to buy that practically then when they moved too. So I wonder would he have let the priests continue to play if he'd actually oh my bought God. it? Well, the funniest uh, thing, they were always like, Giannis was just so polite to us. He was never like, you guys, what the heck? Can you imagine like NBA <laughs> players going up to priests and being like, yeah, it's fine if you take the half court, we'll go over here. You know, only Giannis would do that, right? Like every other person would be like, excuse me, why are you on our court? We are a professional <laughs> basketball team. <laughs> Love the the old the older Buck stories. I want to ask one specific thing quickly about like the the Hawks and the, and expect like draft day. Was there? I, I didn't really register this at first. Did you talk to Bill Simmons about the draft? Because I thought his quotes were interesting, and because he kind of says it in the book, right? Like I I don't think he even bought the Hawk stuff. I always sort of bought the Hawk stuff. I thought they were interested. I didn't know until the book and the Woj pod they were that interested. But he says it like, oh, I th- I, th- I usually think it's bullshit, right? It's like, I think right. Draymond's the one I always think of. There's 30, 29 right. teams that will, oh, yeah, we had Draymond next on our board. He went in the second round. Nobody had him that high on their board. Giannis obviously doesn't fall that far. But what was that kind of convo like about, like, the draft day stuff himself? There's the anecdote about um, Jalen Rose's awful nickname idea. There's a lot of nickname <laughs> talk in the book. But you know, what was it like talking to, to Simmons, who obviously <laughs> always has a take? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, well, I'll, also, I started working for him right before that. So I was like, kind of nervous. I was like, Oh, my God, it's my <laughs> boss now. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but yeah, it was a good interview, because, you know, he he keeps it real. And he's not one to say like, Oh, I knew this, or I didn't, you know, it, he was very honest about the revisionist history that a lot of people have. And, you know, like, for example, I didn't pump up the Dallas stuff in the book, because they I really don't believe they had the interest that they say they did. And I wasn't able to, you know, double, triple confirm that in the way that I could with the Hawks. Um, There just wasn't, again, like all of this is kind of lost to myth, right? One person in the draft room is like, what about that Giannis kid? And then years later, it turns into like, we wanted him. So I really appreciate that Simmons did that. And, um, you know, it was just like so random. I forgot that he had done that draft you know like as an on-camera analyst and so it's just it was perfect and I thought his comment about Paul George was really interesting he thought he was like a Greek Paul George um because I think in later years um we have begun this discussion about like who should we compare Giannis to or what position should he play and I thought Simmons had some great comments about like actually we've been framing it wrong this whole time he should have never been compared to KD he should have never been compared to LeBron um we should have just let him be a five guy uh, who has other capabilities obviously but not try to mold him into that Durant thing because they were pushing the Durant thing really hard at that time so I thought that um Simmons obviously had good comments about that and as you know you know the book was written way before the playoffs so um yeah he he had those things to say a long time ago so that was interesting one of the say that dallas didn't have any interest uh people don't usually have interest in dallas so it's fair that dallas doesn't usually have interest in people in terms of their nba teams i'm gonna stay away from dallas i would like to profile (laughs) luca someday (laughs) 
It's a good call. I said it, not you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of one of the things that I've always been fascinated by, and I actually remember just before we recorded, as Jordan can attest, a detail came back to me, and there's kind of a lot of fun stuff with the way the books and Hawks um, have kind of crossed paths in the years since this. But there's always been this kind of, I guess, range of conspiracy theories as to, you know, did someone tip the books off? Did someone tip the books off? You kind of detail to this day Danny Ferry's own kind of sadness and frustration at the fact that the books picked Giannis. But I've seen, I don't know if you kind of encountered anything like this or if you heard, I'm sure you probably heard stuff that you couldn't report, but there were theories from Atlanta that, you know, Larry Drew, Larry Drew was there at the time when a lot of that would have been happening in, in Europe. He gets fired at the end of that season. He then becomes the book season. It was Larry Drew someone who had information to bring over? And there was a piece in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution a couple of years ago about Jeff Teague. Jeff Teague signs an offer sheet with the books that off season, it's like, did Jeff Teague see him in for workouts? And then he was in communication with the books. There's all of this wild stuff. Then, of course, my own favorite that we've joked about is that Bud was a sleeper agent all along. And really, Bud was was just, he was doing, he was doing the books business. But in all seriousness, I think this is, it's kind of one of the, the most intriguing wrinkles of it because the Hawks were so in. They were so committed. And even... I think obviously Danny Ferry's own time with the Hawks finished in very controversial circumstances. And that became very complicated as years went on that I, I think a lot of people maybe have just forgotten or lost sight of some of the work he was doing as a GM early on with the Hawks. He was doing a really good job. That's how that 60 win team came about, but also you can see in that draft and even the directions they went with, they didn't get Giannis. And even kind of some of the decisions made after, I, I always felt like Ferry was kind of trying to chase the next Giannis or trying to find something that he missed out on. So on that, I know you mentioned that it took quite a bit of time to, to coax Danny Ferry to go on the record, but it, it seems like there's still kind of some raw nerves just generally around the Hawks that they really thought they, they had him. They didn't believe it was going to go another way. And then the book swooped in at the final minute. Yeah, I mean, okay, so first, I definitely heard all of those theories and conspiracy theories, but I can't, I can't confirm, I can't, you know, it, to to be in a story, let alone a book, it's got to be like triple confirmed, and I mm-hmm. just couldn't. Um, but I think it's the one kind of like thing lost in translation that I keep coming back to is the the agents of Giannis essentially doing a handshake agreement with the Hawks saying like, yeah, you're going to draft him. That was like very much established, but then a buck staffer very close to the matter said that they were on the phone with Giannis's agents the night before the draft. So kind of don't know what to make of that. You know, um, the thing with Ferry is uh, two things. Why there is hesitancy. It, of course, he's upset he didn't get Giannis, but his own career is, mm-hmm. is as you mentioned, um, gone. And so I think that was really, he didn't want to talk, I think, for that reason, more so than the other reason. Um, 
but I do think that it is totally a sore spot um, because they missed out on him and it could have changed everything. But I thought the 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 candor of the other uh, Hawks executive that I interviewed um, that's in the book is he said, look, like at the end of the day, we didn't get the job done. We didn't trade up. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. We could have, you know, and I thought that was real honesty. Okay. You saying you're all in, but were you? You know, so I think it's a more complicated picture than like they were all in and the Bucks just got him first. You know, that that person uh, within the Hawks, um, who obviously was a part of this, was really honest about the fact that they didn't get it done. So I think that is a new layer to the Hawks narrative that we don't know. Mm -hmm. I guess that's all the Hawks questions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I I don't have any more Hawks stuff. Sorry. (laughs) No, everyone was like, until later. I actually, there's some stuff, Hawks stuff we'll probably talk about at the end. Somebody told me I need. Go ahead. Sorry. Somebody told me I need to have a trigger warning on the cover for Hawks fans. I'm like, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I do have one more Hawks question for this. Do we know if Bud (laughs) threw the plant? Do we know who threw the plant (laughs) or the drink? We don't know. I don't I would know. Love to, I, I just can't imagine him doing it, but it would just uh, be great. That's like the, the diving on the, the locker room floor. Anecdote, that's true. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's true. I know that hurt. Behind <laughs> closed doors, blood <laughs> is a different animal. Random. So, yeah, well, I, I just, I had to know if, if Bud threw the plant, that would just be a nice full circle thing. <laughs> Let um, me tell you a funny journalism fail yes. detail. I was like, when he, when he dove, was it carpet? Was it, was it, did it burn? Did it, you know, it's like the person was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> he put, he used the punching clock that Jim Boylan established. And yeah. I, <laughs> I think it's funny, Adam, that you bring up that Jeff Teague has the possibility of being the puff. Bucks a stadium. plus on the right. group project, yeah, you know. There you go. A plus. Wow. I mean, that's why he said group project because yeah. it's just I'm, like an organizational thing. I'm counting on you guys to figure this out because I couldn't crack it. It's uh, we have yeah, we thanks. have some uh, some <laughs> we, we have some narrative podcast stuff in the works. Maybe after the current stuff, we'll go in on was Jeff Teague a sleeper? I don't know how we're going to uncover this. It's moved to the top of the queue. Time. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to research yeah. immediately. I believe the, in you all. The, the Jeff T <laughs> championship special. Um, I want to ask about Chris Middleton, actually. he's He pops up throughout the book. I mean, I think it was – there's like levels of stuff people knew about Giannis in the box, right? There's like the, like he sells trinkets. He likes smoothies. That was, that was the every – that was like every NBA person knew that stuff about Giannis. Not as many people knew like early Giannis and Chris were rivals. You know, they were fighting to be the best player. There's a great anecdote about – you know, one of the several kid mind games of like, who's the best player? Oh, you don't think it's you? It, it was Chris at the time, but obviously Giannis, Giannis got there. Um, but Chris, I don't think it is quoted in the book. Did, did Chris not want to talk? Did Chris want to, you know, to keep the focus more on Giannis? Or because that, that would seem like kind of a Chris Middleton thing. But I was curious, just, you know, he, he's in there. He's not in there a ton. And obviously, as you mentioned, written before championship, where I think there was a much more much more broad sense of uh, nationwide, not nationwide, but like general acknowledgement of like that relationship, you know, Giannis at the championship ceremony was very heartfelt with Chris and and they had some great moments, but just wondering about like kind of Chris Middleton, his role in the book and what it was like talking to, or I guess not talking to him. 
Yeah, I was so bummed because I asked obviously a trillion times and his agent um, did not make him available, but didn't say no, but then didn't didn't make it happen either. Um, so I literally tried up until the last minute. I was like, my deadline's in a week. Like, you know, um, so that was unfortunate. And that's that I think that's a casualty of the pandemic, because had yeah. we had games, I could just walk up to him and just ask him in a locker room, you know? So um, unfortunately the agent didn't help out there, but I really, really like Chris's story in the book because I think he is somebody that understands Giannis in a way that many don't. They went through a lot together and they learned to really like each other and respect each other and be really good friends. Um, you mentioned that kid anecdote. There are so many people that brought up that anecdote to me about the kind of power struggle between the two at first, um, because Chris was the best player. And I think people do not realize that like this guy has been putting in work for so long, like he's been good for so long. And I hope that people take that away from the book as well. Like, let's not forget here. Like, I think people that aren't tuning into the books or don't, you know, for whatever reason, they're not covered nationally the way that they could be think he's just like blossomed as of late, but he's been blossoming, you know? So, um, I just thought that was important to note. And I think that in that moment that you described between kid and, and the whole team really, but with Middleton, I think that was a turning point in terms of, okay, you know, Chris is a really important part to, to, to me and our team, but I want to be the guy. And I think that that's not a bad thing. I think Giannis really took off after that. And it, it, it hit Chris's injury going into the 2016-17 season. Yeah. That paves the way for Giannis's, you know, most improved player campaign, like becoming an all-star the first in like, what was it, 13 years since like Michael Red? Right. Like mm-hmm. it's all those like little things where it's like, oh yeah, like, we could be talking about Chris, you know, not on a Giannis level, but like how we talked about him throughout the playoffs or how people kind of, you know, came to the good side of just like seeing how good of a player he is and all that stuff had it, all that didn't or occurred because he got hurt. And, you know, it, he was doing all this stuff prior to that. And even after he got, you know, fully healthy. So it's like, it's an interesting way, like even his trajectory is, you know, intertwined with Giannis's, you know, ascension too. Yeah, I agree. I think every everyone's the character in the story, whether you're um, really close to Giannis or distant. I think they all shape him and the player and person he became. So I really wish I could have talked to him, though, um, someday. Chris, pick up the phone. Come on, Chris. There's, <laughs> Come on, Chris. There's, this is publicly out there. I'll have to edit it out. If not, there's, there's going to be uh, in the soft cover version, a, a championship chapter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there yes. is. I just reminds you of a deadline. I'm sorry. You were like, yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. You. Yeah, just went down at the calendar app. Ooh, August 24th. Okay, shit. <laughs> but Chris, maybe there's still time. Chris, pick up the phone. Talk to Mira. Come on, Chris. Talk about the championship. Help um, a girl out. It'll be good. <laughs> I, I you, think you oh, mentioned. Ahead, well, I'm, I'm going to bring it to a place that I don't think any of us will want to dwell too long, but I think we probably can't avoid so you mentioned the Jason Kidd anecdote. First and foremost, what I'm really interested here, the four of us, uh, we went through that era of the books and the kind of the day-to-day and the, the press conferences, the interviews, and it, it probably took years off our lives. You know, it was 
it was interesting to say the least. And you've mentioned a few times in regard to Yanis or regard to Chris or just regard to the books generally. There is this sense of them not getting the kind of national coverage that you get from other teams being a small market. So there were a lot of kid anecdotes, details in the book that have obviously got quite a lot of attention. I don't think any, uh, the tone of none of them surprised me, and I don't think they would have surprised any of us. We'd, we'd been around to see how a lot of that went. We'd heard all the, the kind of smaller details that trickled out. But from an outside perspective coming to this story, and I think this is maybe part of the reason why it's made a lot of noise, uh, how did you find kind of just getting to familiarize yourself with that time for the team and also that time for Giannis, because it's obviously a formative part of his development as a player, and yet it's by no means a straightforward situation. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was complicated because I was like, okay, I can't ignore this person and his impact because it was a long time and he was there during a critical period of development. And also I'm aware of his domestic abuse and I can't ignore that either. Um, but also like I'm hearing good things about him too. And how can I faint, how can I paint the most, you know, accurate thing possible, um, to show this super polarizing person. And, um, personally, I really wasn't aware. I know Bucks people, I know they were avatars of the fire Jason kid. I just wasn't part of that era. I, you know, I just wasn't plugged in like that to know. Um, but I, as much as, as much as there's stuff in there, there's so much that was cut out. Um, and so that really shows you a lot of things, but I think one of them is that this was impossible to not put in there. And again, like this book, I wanted things there for basketball fans too. And I think people were really curious about what that era was like. And, um, it was just a shame that it was um, went viral because um, number one, it didn't talk about the critical good thing that I worked so hard to delicately put in there without dismissing these really toxic mani maniacal parts. Um, so I think when people read the book, they'll see a more complete picture, but um, I'm surprised that everyone's surprised. Um, I, I don't know. I Milwaukee's had some really good reporters on this beat. And I think I just thought this was I know people didn't know about Larry Sanders, but I, I just thought that a lot of this was out there because a lot of Bucks fans were so angry and upset that he was the coach. So I I was genuinely surprised that everyone was making this huge deal. I, I submitted the book before kid was even in head coaching conversations. He was not a head coach when I reported and wrote this book. I think that was kind of our internal reaction to each other when like the, the, all the stupid headlines and everything kept, kept propagating about all this shock. Like how did people not know generally what was going on at all? I mean, like we all were like, yeah, of course he was doing this kind of stuff. Although I will say you mentioned it. Thank you for telling the true Larry Sanders story, because I feel like that had not been out there. Larry's name was, I won't say drug through the it was drug through the mud, I think, by a lot of people. I don't know if it was intentionally done by the Bucks or not, but I do think that was just maybe it was just, you know, left people to draw their conclusions about a guy who had had, 
you know, some, some, I think, arrest incidents before and stuff in his past and, and was a complicated figure, I think it was easier for everyone at the time, media, to just go, Larry Sanders flamed out, you know, draft bust, totally on him. I thought it was, nice is not the right word, but it, it was good to get some clarity on that. Enlightening. And, and enlightening yes. on, on the real Larry Sanders story. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for even, saying Even that. at the time, sorry, even at the time he did the, players tribune video i think it yep. was which, something like why i walked away from the NBA why, why i walked away and it was really revealing and intimate in a way that was even more uncommon then than it is now and yet there was so much of this for very understandable reasons that i just had not come even close to light before before your book well i really did not know that was going to be a thing until you know, when I ask about kid, everyone says, have you heard of the Christmas practice? This is why I was really surprised that this Christmas practice was not out there before, because like everyone wanted to talk about the Christmas practice. And, you know, I, I just and then I got Larry and then he was like, you know about that? And I was like, yeah, everyone keeps talking to me about it. Like, is it true? And he was like, oh, my God, how did you how do you know about that? Like, he was just like floored that, you know, because nobody knows about that. And, um, I felt really bad. Um, certainly he contributed a lot to the Bucks dysfunction. Um, but also he's a human being and he was going through a lot in his life and nobody deserves to be treated like that. So, um, of course I had to get his perspective and what he went through and how hard that was. And, you know, it is a very small part of the book, but of course it went like bonkers viral because of the internet. But um, he also was really kind to Giannis. I know that he had a lot of issues in terms of getting in fights and, and suspensions, but like he really was a kind soul to Giannis and he really admires Giannis. And, you know, at the end of the interview, when I was just like, is there anything else you want to say? He's just like, I'm really proud of Giannis really proud of the person that he is and I just you know it's you just gotta love it it's just so it's just so heartwarming you know and that happened with so many interviews I did where they're just like I'm just so proud of him such a good person you know so I I think Larry's admiration for Giannis is is very true and deep that's that's awesome Rohan just one I know we're running up on time I want to see if we can all maybe we can each get one rapid fire question in here to wrap up so Rohan Rapid fire. Put Mirren on the spot. Hard balls. Okay. Um, what is, let's let's lighten the mood a little here. What's your favorite uh, story of Giannis being adorable? Giannis being adorable. Um, there's so many. Going to the concert and his mom approving, and <laughs> yes. Ross being like, Ross being like, um, what's what's so what's a big deal? My mom said we could go. Like that's a big deal. She trusts you, bro. Um, adorable. It actually came full circle because he posted about DJ Pauly D at the rave. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all there. Um, I'll go. So mine is mine's about Mello. So I think uh, Mello is Mello's talked about in the book. I didn't really realize I dug more into it. There's a lot of firsts for Giannis that are related to Mello. His first game, his first start, his first and technically only time expiring buzzer beater was in the garden against Mello. And Mello was on his first all-star team. And I know they talked there. There's some quotes from Giannis about that out there. What was it like talking to Mello and kind of getting a sense of that kind of relationship? There's so much about Giannis and Kobe, you know, the putting right. out their MVP and championship. That's obviously the one that's more talked about. Kobe is on a different level of fame, but 
you know, what did you feel about digging or what did you kind of discover about the, the relationship there between Giannis and Carmelo? I loved talking with Carmelo and it happened so late in the game, like three weeks before deadline, it finally occurred. I have been trying for over a year and, um, I, and then he just called me one day. I was just, I was petting my parents' dog and Carmelo called and I was like, oh my God. And I had to just be ready. <laughs> uh, it just happens like that sometimes, you know? And so I was just so excited to talk to him. And I was like, is it true that Giannis was talking shit to you? And he was just like, yeah, we went back and forth and blah, blah. And um, so it was just, it was so fun because Carmelo respects Giannis so much now, of course, but he respected him so much as an 18 year old who could not hang. And I loved hearing the respect in, in Carmelo's voice. And I don't think he gets enough credit for inspiring a lot of players. He really did inspire Giannis. And you're right. It's not talked about as much, but Giannis would look forward to playing against Carmel all the time. And he would, he told coach Oppenheimer once the current Bucks assistant coach, Josh Oppenheimer, I'm going to bust Carmelo Anthony's ass. Um, (laughs) So I just, I just love that. I guess, well, this is probably more of a weightier question, but like what's interesting to me is reading a book about, you know, Giannis, we're, we might not be even at like the midpoint in his career. And you're writing a book about, you know, obviously his life and just, you know, he's lived so many lives already. And you're writing this book and it's, you know, all these biographies that I've read, it's always about players like post-career. And doing that when I think Marcus Thompson, Marcus Thompson's had um, the Steph Curry biography and KD biography, but like there's not so many biographies about players that are still playing now. I guess like how is that challenge or how did you look to that challenge of like trying to write about a player as they're writing their own career? And obviously, you know, it's he wins a title that like as the book is about to come out and all this stuff like it's it's just how did you like look forward to that kind of challenge, I guess? I mean, it was definitely a challenge. I think the most annoying part was when like PR people would be like, we don't want to be accused of tampering. I can't have you talk to (laughs) random assistant coach who coached him in 2014, even though I swear up and down, I will only ask about skinny, lanky Giannis. I swear 2014, nothing about current. Um, And especially because, you know, he was in the midst of his supermax. So I think if I ever do this again with a current player, it will never be this hard because hopefully said player will not be in the lead up to a super max, um, which is just the access for, you know, nobody wants to be accused of tampering and all this stuff, but it was also really exciting. Cause it was like, again, you got to separate yourself and the, the, like with everything out there on the internet, you know, the, there's just so much unknown about this person's backstory. And so I just found it really exciting to try to be, you know, the first comprehensive. Of course, there's been people that have done amazing work um, on Giannis, but just, you know, a book, the first book. So it was both daunting and exciting. And very quickly, obviously, the championship run has been <laughs> completely surreal for all of us. But I, I want to know how surreal was it for you? Because reading through the book, it's incredible. It's It's kind of like a checklist of like, almost like the different boss levels that he's going up in a video game to get to this point. And you've got details, whether it's like, you know, obviously they have to avenge defeat from the heat from a year ago. Then they go on to play the Nets. There's all of the KD comparisons from early in his career. Then they go beyond that and you've got the Atlanta Hawks. You've got all the baggage there and you've got the incredible 
Nate McMillan rising stars uh, detail where I have the quote, coach, I will never forget Nate McMillan. He will pay for this, which Nate McMillan ultimately paid for it in the conference final. So Giannis is true to his word. And one of the things for me that it's just, it's in my head, it sticks in my head as one of the anesthetists from the book is this idea of him crying. It's him crying in Greece when moments are tough on the court. It's getting to Milwaukee, still crying the end of bench or in practices. And it all culminates with him on the court, maybe the slightly more hardened Giannis, the Giannis who's been in America for quite some time where he goes and rushes for his family, but he's also, he's got the cap over his face. He's almost looking for that moment of privacy. Like for you, how surreal is all of that? Are you able to just take the joy for you've spent so much time tracking this story, tracking his family story? Obviously, there's a lot more interesting answer for the book. Or is there a selfish part of you that's like, oh, I just wish I had a little bit more time before I had to submit the book? You know, uh, when I submitted the book, I was like, yes, please. Like, I'm done. Like, I can't. <laughs> I was like, this is due. Thank God. I think I slept for like two days straight. Um, but no, seriously, I, um, which I did. But um I never thought they would win a championship. I thought it was in at the perfect time because he says he's going to stay and it ends on him staying. I thought it had the perfect timing already. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, wow, I evaded the hardest part. Where's he going to stay or go? Because for the, for the biggest part of the book, I was like, I don't know how to end this thing. I don't know what he's going to do. Um, you know, that's why on the cover, he's not wearing a Bucks jersey. We had no idea if he'd still be on the Bucks. Um, so I think... Of course, when I'm watching the playoffs and it's surreal, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, sure. Would it have been nice to like have more? Yeah. But also it's like, I don't know. That would have required an enormous amount of reporting. There's no way I could have done it. You know, like it just, the book was already at like 400 pages. And I really think the the beginning part is more interesting than the end part but you know of course uh, as you guys have reminded me my deadline's coming up for this epilogue um so we will have something but um no it was it was surreal i became friends with a lot of the bucks fans i interviewed and it was like really fun to make number one make new friends and also like watch them be happy and they're all so happy and i see them like repost stuff from the championship like now and it's just like it makes me really happy even though i haven't met these people in real life i'm like when i see one of them post something i just feel like secondhand glow you know like i just feel oh, good for you like you you guys won you know like i just feel so happy for them well you're you're <laughs> yeah, me you're too. An honorary, it worked out yeah, for me too say, yeah that that and you're an honorary bucks fan now i know you were very invested <laughs> in the playoff run it's it's also you but this is how you get roped in i said i yeah. used to <laughs> exactly. the hawks used to be and they got me i'm so. not going out i'm not yeah. going out I'm, I'm all in i'm all in we still have our buck shirts me and my family so you know oh, yeah. there we go <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I think I think we're at time. Rohan, yeah. are you prepared to carry us through here? Yeah, perfect. Thank you for uh, taking part, Mirren. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, make sure you go buy the book, Giannis, The Impro- Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Also, check out her stuff on The Ringer. Just, you know, she also does that. It's incredible as well. The You were promoting the, your profile on Evan Mobley the last time you were on, uh, before you got yeah. on Zaring Out for it soon. I'm doing some football stuff. Um, yeah, the seasons are changing. And yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I would like to do another 
Packers thing, but we shall see. Um, yeah, I hope Ooh. to be on again at some point. I know what's up with me in Wisconsin. I'm not a Midwest girl. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's alluring, Wisconsin sports. For As I said, roped yeah, rope. in. Nope. <laughs> uh, but yeah, make sure you check out all of that stuff. Make sure you are subscribed. Make sure you leave a five star rating. Check out all of the content across the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Uh, go Bucks, and we will talk to you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.